3, and we're going to finish the last of the seven churches that we started, I think, back in November, and uh, we'll finish the last church today, and it's pretty neat how God works because <clears throat> it's going to move us, really, it's going to move us right into communion. So in my mind, it was kind of a, kind of a, a long communion message. But Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, it's where Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea. And most of you know it as the lukewarm church. It's also called the neutral church. And uh, when I think about neutral, I think about a car. And uh, as many of you who drive know, you put the car in neutral and you're not going to go anywhere for very long. You know, if you're driving along and you pop it into neutral or it goes into neutral, the car starts to slow down and eventually it comes to a stop. And that's kind of what happened to the church of Laodicea. And that's really what I want to share this morning with us and to those whom the Holy Spirit might speak to, as well as those watching. That in this last year, maybe the whole year, um, for various reasons, a big one, the pandemic, and you know, just not being able to get out and go to church some of the time, that, again, for whatever reason, our life has been in neutral. And it's kind of slowed down to, to a stop. And we're not where we should be because we've been in neutral and we're not going to get anywhere in neutral. And that's kind of what the message is here <clears throat> as Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea. So let's look at verse 14a. That is the first part of verse 14. And Jesus says, And to the angel <clears throat> of the church of the Laodiceans write. So we have the address here. That is who this message is directed to. The la- this is the last of the seven letters that was written it's written to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was founded by Antiochus II in the middle of the 3rd century BC. And it was named after his wife, Laodice. The city was situated about 40 miles southwest of Philadelphia. That's the church we looked at last week. Uh, on the road to Colossae. While it was under Roman rule, Laodicea had become wealthy. And had a profitable, profitable business making wool cloth. Now, it was destroyed by an earthquake at about 60 AD, but it was able to rebuild itself without any help from the outside. Because, you see, economically, it was well off. And because they were well off economically, it it tended to lull the church to sleep spiritually. And as a result, the city was overthrown by the Turks and is now in total ruins. And you see, that's what happens a lot of times when we cruise in neutral or we become complacent. We tend to be lulled to sleep, spiritually speaking, and we're not guarding our walk. You know, we're not aware of maybe what's going on around us. And the enemy attacks and we're overthrown. And all it takes is one unguarded moment when the enemy attacks and we're overthrown and it could throw us into a total ruin. Look at the second part now, verse 14. 
The first part said, to the angel of the church of Laodiceans, write. The second part, write these things, says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now we look at the author, the author of the message. Jesus here introduces himself as the amen. Now the word amen means so be it. He is, you could say, the so be it. As a title of Christ, it shows his sovereignty and it shows the certainty that his promises will be fulfilled. What he has said, he says, so be it. It is going to be done. When Jesus speaks, it's the final word and his will is always accomplished. He's also called here in the second part of verse 15, the, uh, 14, the faithful and true witness. He says, I am the faithful and true witness because the Laodicean church was not a faithful and true witness. Then because Jesus is a faithful and true witness, he gives special meaning to what he says next here in the second part of verse 14. And that is, he says that he is the beginning, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Now, some people have used this verse to say that Jesus wasn't eternal because it says here that, you know, he was the beginning of the creation in God. In other words, he's the first thing God created in the beginning. Well, that's not what it means. He is not the first of all that was created. He is before all creation. You see, he's always been. He always has been and always will be. You know, he was in the beginning. All right, he's always been there. He's eternal. And Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us, by him, that is Christ, by Christ all things were created. And he is before all things. That is, he was, he, was, he was there before all things were created. And all things were made by him, through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. John 1, 3, John says something very similar. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So you see, Christ came here, you know, when, when, when he was born of Mary, he stepped out of heaven. He stepped out of eternity and he came to this earth through a, a, a normal birth. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a normal in his birth, but it was normal that he came through the birth of a, of a woman. But he came as man to show us what God was like. He showed us God in the flesh. And so again, he stepped out of eternity and came here to earth to show us what God was like. So the phrase here has to be interpreted and supported by these other passages. The word beginning means the origin or primary source. He was the, 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 the ordinary primary source. He was of the creation of God. Verses 15 through 17 now, we see the condemnation. This look at verse 15 through 17. He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Apparently, the church was orthodox. That means it was traditional. It was, it was right on. It, it, was, it was walking by the standards. But it was a dead orthodoxy. Okay, it was alive to tradition and to doing the right things and all that. But it, it, was, it, was, it was dead inside. The trouble with the Laodicean church was, again, not the head trouble. They knew what to do. 
all right? They, they knew they were, they, were, they were orthodox, they were traditional, but there was heart trouble. It was all done without the emotion of the heart, the heart attitude towards Christ. And of all the churches Jesus gives this church here of Laodicea, he gives this church the most critical scolding of all the churches. The problem seems to be that the church was lukewarm rather than cold or hot. The word translated lukewarm, it's used only here. It refers to barely warm water. When you are hot and you're exhausted and you're wanting a, a, a good drink of water, barely warm water is the last thing that you want. It's not thirst quenching. The word for cold is used in verse 15 and 16 here. And in Matthew 10, 42, it's used as a cold cup of water. The word hot in verse 15 and 16 comes from the word zestos, meaning boiling hot. So cold probably here means icy cold because it was one extreme versus the other. The church was neither coldly nor uh, uncaring, nor was it fervent in spirit. So it's pretty clear that Jesus is speaking about three different spiritual conditions which can be named as a state of coldness or a state of warmth or fervor and a state of being lukewarm. Jesus was referring to the fact that many in the world are cold to the things of Christ. That is the gospel, the word of God leaves them totally uninterested It doesn't stir up any interest in spiritual emotion and commitment. It does nothing to them. And many of these people were saved later on. But before they were saved, they were cold. They were in a cold state. They had no evidence of grace or salvation in their life, which is understandable. We can look back to our own life before we got saved. We were in a cold state. There was obviously no evidence of grace, of salvation in our life. On the other hand, those described as hot here are those who show real spiritual enthusiasm. And there's no question that that they're born again. And that they have the life-changing power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And they have a fanatical testimony showing everybody that they are true believers in Jesus Christ. The normal change, okay, is from a state of coldness before you come to Christ, to a state of spiritual warmth. And you can see it demonstrated in the life of many of of God's servants in the scriptures. Now, Paul himself at one time was was, was cold towards Christ. And he bitterly persecuted Christians. But when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, that, that all changed. His opposition and his lack of interest immediately disappeared and it was replaced by a fervent, on-fire heat of a burning testimony for Jesus Christ. The Jesus that he used to persecute then became to him an object of affection and love and worship that that he'd gladly die for the name of Christ. It's the same with Moses. When Moses was faced with a choice of suffering affliction with his people or, or going with the Egyptians, he chose to suffer affliction with his people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin 
which was passing. Now this has been the pattern of many people who have been won from spiritual deadness and coldness to a fervency of Christian testimony. So you have the, the cold state, you have the hot state, and now the third state is lukewarm. Lukewarm is what describes the Laodicean, the Laodicean church. And this condition refers to those who have shown some interest, some interest in the things of God. Now, they may be professing Christians. You know, they, they say they're Christians. And, you know, they go to church every once in a while. But they don't have a testimony. They have fallen short of a true testimony for Jesus Christ. And their attitude and their life raises some questions about, do they really have spiritual life? Are they truly born again? They're like the people that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 29, 13. It says, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts far from me. Isaiah says, hey, these people talk about me. They honor, you know, God, they honor God. They talk about God with their mouth. But their hearts, hey, they're nowhere near. These people have been touched by the gospel. But it's not clear whether or not they really belong to Jesus. And this was the case with the church at Laodicea. The church in Laodicea is neither hot or cold. It's not one extreme or the other. They can't be put in the same class with the worldly. Who are totally unconcerned about the things of Christ. Nor can they put it, be put in the class with those who unmistakably bear a true to- testimony for the Lord. You see, lukewarm people cannot be put in either group. They can't be put in the hot group. They can't be put in the cold group. They're in-betweeners. <laughs> They're in between the cold and the hot people. Their lukewarmness is the reason for the radical statement that Jesus makes next. What does he say? He said he will vomit them out of his mouth. Think about that. If you're not warm, you're not cold. I mean, if you're lukewarm, he'll vomit you out of his mouth because those people nauseate him. Think about that. They make him sick to his stomach. It's very clear that there's something about the in-between state of being lukewarm that is totally obnoxious to God. There's a lot more hope for the person who hasn't been touched by the gospel, who doesn't pretend to put his trust in Jesus, than the person who makes some profession of faith but by the way they live, they, they, they don't really honor God. Who's heard the gospel and says he believes it. We read also in Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 30 through 32. Listen to what it says. As for you, son of man, the children of your people, God speaking to Ezekiel. Uh, the son of man is another title for Ezekiel. As for you, son of man. The children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another. Everybody's saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you, Ezekiel, as people do. They sit before you as my people. They hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. 
Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song for one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. These people said, hey guys, come on, let's go hear what Ezekiel has to say. Let's go see what the preacher has to say. Oh, he, he you know, Ezekiel, he speaks so well. He, he, you know, he's like that, that pleasant voice that you like to listen to. He's like that person who plays an instrument so well or, or sings and their voices, you just enjoy listening to them. They're like a very lovely song with a pleasant voice. But God says, Ezekiel, they hear what you're saying but they don't do them. There's nobody farther from the truth in Christ than the one who makes an empty profession without real faith. The church at Laodicea is a sad picture of a lot of the professing churches in the world today. Throughout history, we've seen this. And the church at Laodicea serves as a picture of those who take part in other religious worship without the inner reality. There's a lot of these churches today and and, and they're a bigger hindrance to the cause of Christ than, than if they were cold and dead. You see, the cold and dead churches, they don't reach anybody. So they don't harm anybody. It's the lukewarm people the mediocre Christian, the middle-of-the-road churches that reach a lot of people because they see they have just enough religion to, to make them religious, but they don't have enough religion to save them. And that's where they deceive people. They're the middle-of-the-road church. That's what the, luke, the lukewarm uh, person is, the mediocre Christian. They reach a lot of people who naturally like putting up with mediocrity. They don't want to be full out committed. That's why they like the lukewarm. Because they 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 give the 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 the, the impression that you know they're 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 Christ centered and they're, they're they're doing what Christ wants them to do and they're committed and they're serving and and yet with eloquent words of deception they persuade them. They tell, oh, a little bit of religion is good, but you know what? Don't go overboard. Don't get too extreme. You don't have to go to church. You know, just, just go once a week, do your thing. But you don't have to go Sunday, you don't have to go. And you don't have to. The thing is, we want to. We'll get to that later on. They don't like the churches that rebuke them because they lack enthusiasm. That is, they lack enthusiasm to share the gospel. They don't like the church that, that, that says, hey, you know, you need to spend more time in prayer and in the word of God and serving the Lord and get involved in the kingdom of God. How many people have outwardly conformed to requir- requirements of the church without a true state of being born again into the family of God? That is, you know, they, 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 got, they signed a membership card. They've been going, they signed a membership card. Oh, maybe they got baptized. Maybe they give money to the church. Maybe sometimes the church is having an event and they come and they help once in a while. They have all of this outwardly activity that they're doing. 
You know, and, and, it, and it looks like, you know, hey, I'm, re- I'm conforming to the requirements of the church, but they really don't have a state of being. They're not born again. They're not, they're not born again into the family of God. And how many church members are far from God, but by their membership, it makes them feel good. It, it satisfies their heart. And that membership and that baptism and that little, whatever else may be going on, that little bit of religion, it has satisfied their hearts and it has lulled them into a sense of false security. I know I'm going to heaven. My name's on the membership roll. I got baptized. And in man's history, no one has been harder to reach for Jesus Christ than the person who says he's a Christian. Because of those things. Oh, I, 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 I know I'm a Christian. My, my, my parents are, are Christians and I've been raised in a Christian family and, you know, they go to church all the time. And remember, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You must be born again. Your parents' faith cannot save you, will not save you. Don't be, don't be deceived. Don't be lulled into that sense of false security. Again, the one who is quite satisfied with the amount of devotion to God, with the things, these are the things that represent Christianity to him. You know, I don't, I, I don't have to go to, you know, why should I go to church on Sunday evening or Wednesday night? You know, you, 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 you're right, you don't have to. The point I'm making is that, that all these things correlate with my fervent love for Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. I want to be here. It's a lot easier to win, you know, for Jesus, it was a lot easier to win prostitutes and drunkards than, than those who profess to be Christians, like, like the, the scribes and the Pharisees. The unresponsiveness, the lack of concern, the lack of interest meant in the word lukewarm in this passage seems to even go as far as their conviction. Even, you know, in other words, you know, they knew about the vital doctrines of the Christian faith. They knew it was a necessity to be born again. They knew that that... that that, that if one was truly born again, that there was a need for a dramatic change in life and also a perspective, a viewpoint required of a true Christian. You know, so their lukewarmness even kind of just didn't make that important. Though it was, it's vital, it's evidence of the new birth. And if you don't understand the need of the new birth, and Jesus said need, you must be. He didn't suggest you ought, you ought to be. He said you must be. You must be born again. If you don't understand the need of the new birth and the depravity of the sin of the human heart and the cure that only heaven can give you, that is the salvation offered by the crucified Christ, you are just plain church. You're just a member in an organization without biblical Christianity and without membership in the body of Christ without the miracle of the new birth. Do we really know what it means to be born again? 
measure yourselves by God's standard. Look at what God says about being born again. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you become a new creature. Are you a new creature? Old things pass away and everything becomes new. Is that that true of you and me? Paul said in Romans 12, 11, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Are we fervent in spirit serving the Lord? And the fervent here in this passage means boiling hot. And then in Romans 12, 12, Paul said, continually, I'm sorry, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is evidence of the new birth. Paul prayed that day he began, he, he, he was, that day he got saved. It says that they found him praying. <laughs> Evidence of the new birth. First Peter 2, 2 and 3. Well, first let me read uh, uh, James five sixteen. You're fervent in prayer. Again, notice the fervency. First uh, Peter 4, 8. Have fervent love for one another. Notice how many times the word fervent is used in the believer's life. There is a fervency. There is a, a heat, if you will. There is a fire going on. And then 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. When your newborn child came into this world and first tasted of its mother's milk, that's all that baby wanted after that. And when that baby didn't get it, what did it do? It cried and it cried and it cried and it cried until you gave it the milk. This is the picture of the Christian that Peter is is painting here. That baby has a fervent desire and longs for that milk. Like a newborn child, God says here. Like that newborn child who has tasted the Lord's goodness, who has truly been born again, they will naturally desire the word of God. Like that baby does the pure milk. Like Peter said, if indeed you have tasted of the Lord, then you will want that milk all the time. You see, these are the evidences that that we measure ourselves by to see if we're born again. In Acts 2, 42, verse 43, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. All in one verse, it showed that those people that got saved in the early church, they were steadfastly in the word of God, the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, and in fellowship with one another, the breaking of bread and in prayers. All the evidence of a new believer. And in Acts 2.46, it says, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Notice, These folks didn't go to church Wednesday and Sunday and and, and Sunday morning. Daily, they went to church. 
every single day. That's why when you look at the book of Acts, you see the miraculous things that were done in the book of Acts. You see the miracles. You see the power of, of the, for the lack of word, the, the everyday Christian. Because they had a constant time in the word of God. They had a constant fellowship in one accord. They were in agreement with one another. With one another. They broke bread every day. They went to church every day. This is where the power comes from. It is not something that's, that, again, it's not a condemning thing that I'm saying. I'm just showing you the evidence of what it means to be born again. That we may examine ourselves. The psalmist in Psalm 84 too said, My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. The psalmist, for some reason, wasn't able to make it to the courts of the Lord. And he missed being there. But notice he didn't say, oh, how I miss the church and the people and the songs and the furnishings. And I'm sure he did. But the thing that he highlighted, he said, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's the key. He missed God. Where God promises to meet us in the, in, the, in the church. Why is it that we don't make the endeavor? And I know there are different reasons, but if we can, why don't we make the endeavor to, to be a part of the body of Christ on Sunday evening and Wednesdays and Sunday mornings? Are we so solidly, so solid, so solid spiritually that we don't need more of the word of God? We don't need more fellowship? You know, it was Peter said, it's when that baby desires that milk that he grows thereby, that he grows from, you know, when that, if that baby stops drinking that milk, he quits nourishing himself. And he's going to get sick. And if he doesn't have that, that, eventually he's going to die. That's the same thing with the Christian. The more of the word, the more we grow by it, the healthier we get. The less of it, the weaker we get. And sooner or later, that, that spirit is going to die. We need to feed the spirit of God that it grows and that we grow from it. Here we don't see the Lord mention any sins or good works by the Laodiceans. Not only that, Jesus doesn't mention that they strayed from, from doctrine or morals. Notice that. They didn't go off on doctrine and also their, their living didn't go, go off track. They just got lukewarm. They didn't do anything. So let's say that they didn't stray from God's word. Or morals. Or if they did, it may have been the result of their lukewarm condition. Because that's not a healthy condition to be in. In either case, the quality of being lukewarm assumes the view of being totally intolerable by God. And the worst thing about this church's condition was its self-complacency. Look at verse 17. 
Jesus, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Their lack of spiritual insight, devotion, and faith in God is shown in their lukewarm condition. By thinking that they were rich. Because of all of their material possessions instead of spiritual possessions, which were represented by the words, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. You see, their lack of anything, their lack of stuff, (laughs) their lack of financial needs seems to have blinded their eyes to their desperate need of spiritual riches. Again, it's amazing what we see and what God sees in our life. What we see as being rich and wealthy and needing nothing. God says, hey, you're wretched, you're miserable, poor, blind and naked. And Jesus points that out to them by saying, don't you know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked? Their spiritual condition was the exact opposite of their, their imagined sufficiency in worldly things. Because they had all the worldly things, they were, they were okay, they were, they were cruising. Not really, they were in neutral, <laughs> they weren't going anywhere. The church at Laodicea with their unconscious need, their unaware need, they were, they were lulled into a sense of contentment and into a, a, a by, by worldly sufficiency. By the world's standards, they felt Good, they were content. But spiritually, they were in a wretched state and they didn't know it. They didn't know it. And without the real joy of the Lord, Jesus, they were miserable. In spite of their wealth, in spite of their worldly wealth, they were miserable. They were poor. Why? Because they didn't have real and eternal possessions. And they were lacking the eye of faith that could help them to find the true riches that last forever. He says they were blind. They were blind to things that could be seen only by spiritual sight. And they were naked. Of what? Of spiritual clothing. The righteousness that comes from God. Even though they were clothed with rich garments of silk and wool. The Laodiceans are a type of this modern world. That enjoys what the natural eye can see. But it's not changed by the gospel. And it doesn't see past the material stuff to the unseen and real eternal spiritual riches. Now think of this. If you remember the opening at the beginning, it was, they, they were economically well off. Yet the church was poor in a wealthy banking center. They were blind in a community that had an excellent medical school. Think of that. The commentator Barclay said this. He said, Laodicea was famous for two kinds of medicine, an ointment for sore ears and an eye powder for sore eyes. Jesus said, you're blind. And yet they were right there. A medical center. An ointment for sore ears. What did Jesus say? You know, let the, hear what the Spirit has to say. They couldn't hear. They couldn't see. And yet they were at this medical center that had 
the cure for both of those. He says they were naked in a place that was famous for its manufacturing of fine woolen garments. What this says is it's possible for their church today to flourish outwardly in the middle of material prosperity and yet be poor, blind, naked, spiritually speaking, and I think in the United States of America. We have it all. Materially. And yet look at the sad condition this country is in. And who knows where it's headed now, (laughs) you know, with the new president, if again he's confirmed. Who knows? That's That's what the people wanted, apparently. And to these people who were so unaware of their need, Jesus gave them a word of warning. In verse 18, look at it. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus gives his loving counsel here concerning the serious but unrecognized need by the people. He said, buy from me. Their problem is that all their wealth couldn't buy what they needed. Now, when he said buy from me, this could be referring to Isaiah 55, 1, when when God said buy without money and without price. The purchase price is is to just recognize their wretched condition and come to him in repentance, leaving their riches and, and, and that status for the true riches of faith that are tried in the fire. And found everlasting. Leave your worldly wisdom for true wisdom. You see, God is saying you can't find happiness by chasing after it. True happiness is a byproduct of your relationship with God. And many times people's unhappiness is, is because they're looking in all the wrong places. And they're looking at things that never can satisfy. And no person or thing can ever bring you true and lasting uh, happiness. They must receive the pure white garments of righteousness to replace these filthy rags of our own self-righteousness. Just like the eye salve is needed for physical blindness, their spiritual blindness must be improved. As Paul said in Ephesians 1, 17 through 18, by the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. By the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Christ, your eyes of understanding will be enlightened and you will know what is the riches of the glory of your inheritance. Verse 19, the exhortation continues. Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Chastening is a sign of God's loving care as a heavenly father. And the word love here is not agape. It's phileo. Which is a a tender emotional touch. 
The word rebuke here means to convict. The word chasten is literally to train a child. All of these words shows the gentle compassion of Jesus who deals with us and the church like a disobedient child that, a needed, that the father needs to discipline and show his love to. The church lacked zest. What's needed is zeal. That's why Jesus said, so be zealous. The word zealous here is in the present imperative, which means constantly zealous. It doesn't mean just when you feel like it. There is to be a constant zealousness. And repent is calling for instant action in a critical decision. And to this call of repentance, Jesus added these words in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Every soul winning believer should learn this verse. Jesus stands at the door of every sinner's heart and he's knocking and he's trying to get in. Now Jesus will not break down the door. He will not force his way in because you see he's created us with free wills and he won't violate that free will. But if the sinner opens the door, man, he's, and the sinner's the only one who can open that door, Jesus promised, I will come in. And we'll have fellowship. I will dine with you. And the word dine is fellowship. And it's specifically the meaning that it's unhurried fellowship around the table at the evening meal when the rush of the day is over. Back in that time, when they ate at that evening meal, when the day's work was done and everything that they had to do was done, now it was a time of unhurried fellowship. They would just sit there and enjoy each other and each other's fellowship. And that's what he's inviting us to do, to, to enjoy this unhurried fellowship with him. Verse 21, now we see the reward for, that, for those who listen. Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Through all the many temptations and tests that Jesus went through in his life on this earth, he overcame them all and he received his reward. And Jesus says, for those who follow me totally and who follow me faithfully to the end, you will receive a reward. In eternal life. Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, but he who endures to the end will be saved. It's not just starting the race and getting halfway through or three quarters of the way through or just dropping dead at the finish line. It's crossing. He who endures to the end will be saved. Overcoming all of the obstacles, all of the hindrances, all of the things that we encounter as a Christian through, the, to, through this life, we endure to the end to that last dying breath, those will be saved.
And again, the enduring isn't how we're saved, all right? Enduring to the end is the evidence that we are saved. What did Paul say? I finished the race. I fought the good fight. He didn't say, well, I almost made it. I'm close enough and I I fought like crazy, but I just, no. I made it to the finish line. I fought the good fight. And you know what? When when you're in a battle, you're going to get wounded. You're going to receive scars. You're going to get hurt. But the reward is eternal life and no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more wounds, no more battles, no more crying. Verse 22 as we close. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This message is designed to get us out of our comfort zone. Out of our complacency. And into our prayer closet. And into the word. And into the church. And into serving God with a, with a fervency, with a zeal. And if we don't, we're just like the Laodiceans. And that's why Jesus told them to repent. And again, the, rep- the word repent was calling for an instant action now at a critical point, being lukewarm. That's why Jesus addressed them. You are at a critical point in your relationship with me. If you're in that neutral position, repent. And may we do that as we look back on our, in our, on our last year and, and where, we, where we've been, where we were, where we are now. Let us not carry that into the new year. Let us heed the message to the Laodiceans. Let us not be lukewarm. Let us be on fire for God. Let us repent if we need to. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you so much, God, for your wonderful word. And we thank you for this great exhortation to us, Father, this admonition, Lord. Lord, we don't want to be lukewarm and we don't want to be cold. We want to be hot on fire for you, Lord. Let us have this holy zeal, God. Lord, let nothing stop us, hold us down, God. Let us not become complacent or continue to be complacent. Let us not be lulled into a sense of false security, God. Let us hear and do, Father. Let us let our words match our works and our works match our words, God. Lord, may may we repent. May we seek your forgiveness, God, if we've kind of just put ourselves in that neutral position, Lord. And God, help us now to put it into drive, Lord, overdrive. And let us go for it, God. 
So we thank you, Lord. We're so blessed, Father, to to hear your word, Lord, and to take your words and put it into practice, Lord. To change us, to shape us, to mold us, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like I said, this is a really, it was, a, it was great how this message really kind of moves us right into communion this morning. And as we all know, we've started, just started a new year. And it's not even three days old yet. And it's already changed many lives. And there are more changes coming. We've, we've begun a new year. It's a new season in our life. And someone has said that the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And it is. You know, and God's word says that his mercies are new every morning. So see, we can count on whatever season of life that we're in or whatever is coming our way. I can depend upon God's mercies. Whatever I need for the situation. Because Lamentation says, great is your faithfulness, God. And that, and that you are my portion. And so I hope in you, God, for whatever comes my way. John said in Revelation 21, 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And when I was thinking about communion, and I was thinking about the new year, the word new is what stuck in my mind. And then then the Holy Spirit just began to reveal all of these passages that he brought to mind that spoke of something new. And how they all fit, how they were all related but God says, I, I, he says I, I, make, I make all things new. No matter what it is, I, make, I can make it new. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 22 through 25, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We need a new perspective in our thinking many times. He says that you put on the new man. Notice, new, new. Put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Is that what Jesus just talked about to the Laodiceans, putting on the garments of righteousness and holiness? That we were created by Christ in the beginning? Let our mind be renewed as we go into the new year. Let us, let us put on that new man if we kind of little by little took off the new man and the old man begin to rise his ugly head. And as you come to the table this morning, you know, figuratively speaking, maybe you need to renew your covenant to Jesus Christ. When he made his new covenant with us in his blood, he's keeping will always keep his covenant with us. And when it comes to things being new, 
Bible tells us we will have a new name. And we'll sing a new song. And we have a better hope in Jesus Christ. And a new heaven and a new earth. God has provided something better for all who keep their covenant with him. And all sorrows and all pain, tears will be no more. Never to be experienced again. passage for communion I want to read from today is in Luke. It's Luke 26, verses 26 to 30. And it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood. And again, the cup of the new covenant. Oh, notice, the cup of the new covenant. Which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And you know, that could be for all of us. It could be for some of us. The rapture comes, we'll all be drinking anew with Christ in the Father's kingdom. Or if the appointed time is next year or this year, we might get there before the others. And either way, I'm going to drink it anew with the Lord. You know, as you get your cup prepared and ready to partake, we're going to have a, a song, a song of meditation Reflection to think about the things that was said and to examine our hearts and our lives and see if we need, again, repentance. And that we ask God to turn up the burner a little bit. Of course, we're the ones who have to do that in order to get out of this lukewarm state. So, as we have this song right now, just, you know, meditate upon last year and asking God to just fire us up as we go into 2021.